would invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to the very last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation, continuing on in our study of it, and today we're looking at chapter 12, chapter 12, I'm going to read to you the entire chapter, all 17 verses, so I invite you to listen as I read to you beginning in verse 1 of Revelation chapter 12. There we read, John says, And a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains in the agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his heads seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with an iron with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished for 1,260 days. Now war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon. And the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they loved not their lives even unto death. Therefore, rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath, because he knows that his time is short. And when the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. But the woman was given the two wings of the great eagle, so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness, to the place where she is to be nourished for a time and times and half a time. The serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman to sweep her away with a flood. But the earth came to the help of the woman and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed the river that the dragon had poured from his mouth. Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. And he stood on the sand of the sea. Let's pray together. Father, as we pray each week, we do pray that you would be present with us in this very moment, that your Holy Spirit would be at work, helping us to see wonderful things from this portion of your word. And I pray, Father, that you would give us eyes and ears and a heart that truly believe what your word says, that we would once again put our faith in you and that you would show us the wonder and the amazement of your gospel of grace. We pray this in Jesus' name. 
Amen. One of the first times that the gospel came to the country of Nigeria with power was in 1907. A man named Reverend Fox, who had been a professor at Cambridge University in England, uh, decided that he would go to Nigeria to preach the gospel. Uh, Reverend Fox didn't know much about the country of Nigeria, really didn't know much about the, con- the, the, the whole continent of Africa, but the Lord put on his heart a particular burden for that country, that people from Nigeria would come to a saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so, Reverend Fox left a successful career, left almost everything, and made his way to Nigeria. God gave Reverend Fox almost a a supernatural ability to connect with the Nigerian people. And many Nigerians were converted during his ministry. He would plant a church in a village or town and he would see the Lord grow that church with people. And then he would move on to the next village or town and plant another church and see that church grow. And then on and on and on again. Eventually he wrote to his brother. Dr. Fox, who also lived in England and was a physician in that country. And he begged for his brother to come and to give him some help, helping to start a medical ministry. The Dr. Fox also heard the call to go to Nigeria and left a very successful medical career and began to make his way to Nigeria. Before he arrived, his brother, the Reverend Fox, became sick and died. And shortly after Dr. Fox arrived in Nigeria, he too became sick and he too died. The missions agency through which they were serving sent word to their parents that both of their sons, their only children, had died serving the Lord in Nigeria. Their father was a pastor as well. And at some point in his uh, past had inherited a large piece of land in England. And when they got the word of the death of their only children, he and his wife mourned greatly. And then they decided to sell the inherited land and to take the money and to give it to the missions agency. So they gathered the money and traveled to the missions agency and put it at their feet and said that they wanted them to take the money and to use it so that the work of the gospel in Nigeria would go forth. And indeed, that is what happened. The gospel did go forward. Eventually, it reached an area called Ampere. People were being converted by the hundreds. One of the people converted was a Mr. Kwashi. He came to faith in Christ and he began to evangelize his own family. He began to disciple his children and his grandchildren. They became Christians and an entire branch of a family was impacted with the gospel. Eventually, Mr. Kwashi's great-great-grandchild was born, a Benjamin Kwashi, who also put his faith in the Lord Jesus Christ became a pastor and to this day is the Archbishop of the Anglican Church in Jos, Nigeria. He and his wife Gloria opened their home on a regular basis to orphans, housing up to 60 orphans at a time, many whose parents have been killed by Muslim terrorists. Hundreds of Christians are killed in the area where Reverend Kwashi lives every single year and yet there he stands on the front lines of defending the faith 
and even calling on the Nigerian government to come to the help and the aid of those who are being persecuted for their faith in Christ. What, what, what kind of gospel is it that would move people like Reverend and Dr. Fox to give up everything and to move to Nigeria to preach the gospel in word and deed? What kind of gospel is it that would move people like their parents to sell an inheritance and give it to, the further, to further the work of Jesus Christ? What kind of gospel is it that would move someone like Benjamin Kwashi to stand steadfastly for his faith in Christ, even in the face of suffering and persecution and even death? I would suggest to you it is the gospel that we read about in Revelation chapter 12. As we come to Revelation chapter 12, it marks a turning point in this book. We are now, as it may seem hard to imagine, we are actually halfway through the book of Revelation. We've covered chapters 1 through 11, and now we're moving through chapters 12 to 22. And it marks not only the halfway point of the book, but it also marks a change in the story as John is getting these visions, as he will give them to us. In chapters 1 through 11, we have looked at these visions that John has been explaining to us of the spiritual conflict that God's people experience in this world. How they are tempted in various ways to compromise the faith. Tempted from both within themselves as well as from outside of themselves. And we've seen through these chapters an increasing intensity, both of the temptations and the struggles and the suffering and the persecution and the judgment that comes on those who are not God's people. Now we're moving into chapters 12 through 22. And John is going to tell us the same story that he's been giving us in chapters 1 through 11. But now we're going to get greater detail. We're going to get a different perspective. It's the same story, but now the curtain is being pulled back to show the parties who are involved and this incredible spiritual battle that is taking place. We will see the devil and his being the deeper source of evil and suffering and persecution and trials in this world. We'll see how conflict plays itself out on the cosmic and spiritual battlefield of the heavenly realms. Even as we do that, we'll still be oriented around the number seven. We've been talking about that through these first 11 chapters. We were told right at the beginning that this was a letter that was written to seven churches in the first century in Asia Minor. There were seven letters that were written to these seven churches. We read about in chapters two and three. We read about the seven seals and the seven trumpets. And now as we move into the second half of the book, the number seven will continue to show up. Verses, or chapters 12 through 15 will give us seven different scenes or pictures or signs of these various beings and people that are at work behind the scenes in the spiritual and cosmic battlefield. Today we're going to see the dragon and the woman. In the coming weeks we'll talk about the beast from the sea and the beast from the land. We'll hear about the Lamb of God and the 144,000. We'll read about three angels and their work in redemptive history. We'll hear about the Son of Man harvesting on the earth. And at the end, we'll come and see the saints' victory over the dragon and the beast. Today, we're here in chapter 12. And in chapter 12, we get a picture of what's happening behind the scenes spiritually from the time of Jesus' incarnation, His birth into this world, until the time that He ascended back up into heaven. 
I want us to see three things as we look at chapter 12 today. First, we'll look at the drama of redemptive history as it's played out. Secondly, as we hear the drama of redemptive history, we will also hear a very important declaration that is made about God's people and the freedom that they have, as well as the protection that they are promised. And we'll finish by thinking and reflecting on how all of this ought to result in a life of doxology. So first of all, the drama of redemptive history. Now, it's important if you want to understand chapter 12, you need to understand that John is telling us the story of redemptive history from the incarnation to the ascension of Jesus. In most of your translations, you'll see that there's a division there. It wasn't in the original text, but our translators have put a division in chapter 12 after verse 6 and before verse 7. It's actually a fairly helpful uh, distinction. In verses 1 through 6, we get the first act of this drama of redemption, if you will. Uh, we get a, a picture of what's happening in the people and the beings that are involved with it. And then in verses 7 through 17, we get the exact same story, but we're given more detail and it's coming to us from a different perspective. We also are, are to be reminded before we dig in that there's lots of symbolism taking place in chapter 12. In fact, John says that in verses 1 and 3 that he gets a great sign. These things are a sign. So first of all, we see Act 1 in verses 1 through 6. It introduces the people and the beings that are involved in this great drama of redemption. And who are they? Well, we read in verses 1 and 2, A great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth. Many in church history, and especially uh, Roman Catholic folks, have believed that this is describing Mary, the mother of Jesus. I don't think that fits the context very well. After all, John says he's getting a sign. This woman is, is a symbol for us. And what is she a symbol of? What does she represent? Well, as John is doing often in Revelation, he is digging deeply into the Old Testament here. Certainly he has in mind Genesis 37. Joseph had a dream. And in that dream he had a picture of the sun and the moon and the twelve stars. And we're told there that they represented Jacob and his wife and the twelve tribes of Israel. Later in the prophet Isaiah in chapter 54, Isaiah speaks of Israel, God's people... As a woman and the Lord as her husband. And then in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul in the, his letter to the Galatians in Galatians chapter 4 actually quotes from Isaiah 54. And he describes the church, the church of God's people in the Old Testament, the church of God's people in the New Testament as a pregnant mother. What we have here is a picture. This woman who is pregnant is a picture of God's covenant people. His treasured, beloved people throughout history. And it is through God's people that we read that the male child is born in verse 5. 
This child is born from the woman, coming from the people of God. And we read in verse 5 that this one who is born will rule all the nations with a rod of iron. That helps us understand who this is that he's referring to. Who is it that would rule all the nations with a rod of iron? John here is quoting from Psalm 2, which God's people throughout history have known to be a messianic psalm. It's referring to Jesus. And after all, isn't that what we read at the end of verse 5? That this one who came, who was born from the woman, who came out of God's people, will rule all the nations with a rod of iron, and he ascended into heaven and is sitting on the throne. So obviously the male child is Jesus. We also have another player in this great drama. We get that in verses 3 and 4. Another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns and on his head seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. The dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth. Here we have the great dragon. We don't have to wonder who this is. John tells us in verse 9, it is the ancient serpent. The one who was in the Garden of Eden who led Adam and Eve astray. The devil himself, Satan. And he's described to us in this very flowery language. He is described as having seven heads and ten horns and seven diadems. Again, speaking about him symbolically. To have seven heads means that he has great wisdom. To have ten horns. A horn in the scriptures is a sign or a symbol of power, of potency. He has ten horns. He is very powerful. And on his heads he has seven diadems reflecting the authority and the influence that he has over the kingdoms of this world. We're also told that he had a very powerful tail. And with that tail, he has swept down a third of the stars of heaven. There's lots of differing opinions about what this is referencing. Perhaps, and some believe that it's speaking about Satan's initial rebellion in heaven. And how about a third of the angels followed him and became demons. Perhaps that's the case. Or more likely, it's simply a reference to his power and his influence of being able to sway large numbers of people and even angels to fall under his leadership. Here are the actors in this first act of this wonderful drama of redemption. And notice we read at the end of verse 4 that this dragon, this, this red dragon, the ancient serpent Satan, was waiting for the arrival of the child, the Christ child, Jesus Christ, because he wanted to devour, devour the child when he was born. This is the one, the serpent, who remembers the promise given in Genesis 3.15. That indeed one would come, the child would come who would crush his head. And he seeks to devour the child before the child would be able to do that. But we read in verse 5 that Jesus indeed was born and Satan failed to devour him and he was caught up to God and his throne in heaven. And it's as if John is subsuming all of the, the birth and the life and the Death and the resurrection and the ascension of Jesus under that little phrase that he was ascended up into heaven and is sitting on the throne in heaven. 
And then finally, we read in verse six that the woman who represents the church, God's people, fled from the dragon into the wilderness, which is often used in the Bible as a place of protection. In fact, that's what it says, that they fled to a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished, cared for, taken care of. For 1,260 days, that symbolic number referencing the time between Jesus' first advent and his second coming. That's Act 1, kind of a 30,000 foot view of the drama of redemption. And then in verses 7 through 17, we get the second act, which is the same story, but it is more detail and from a different point of view. It comes to us from the perspective of of heaven. That's what we read in verse 7. Now war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon. The dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated. There was no longer any place for them in heaven, and the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. John gets this vision describing the battle that took place in heaven between Michael and his angels and the dragon. And his angels. He's talking about the time from just before Jesus was born until Jesus ascended into heaven. This isn't speaking about uh, the, the, the fall before the fall and the battle that took place between Satan when he initially fell. But by drawing heavily here from the prophet Daniel, he's describing the arch archangel Michael coming to the rescue of God's people. This cosmic battle at the time of the incarnation of Jesus Christ as the devil is defeated and thrown out of heaven once again. It reminds us of something that Jesus said in the Gospel of Luke. Uh, You'll remember that uh, Jesus sent out 72 of his disciples into the villages and the areas around Jerusalem to proclaim the gospel. And they went out and they had... An amazing response. They saw miraculous things happening. And they came back to Jesus. And in Luke chapter 10, we read that the 72 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And Jesus said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy. And nothing shall hurt you. It's a picture of what we're seeing here in Revelation chapter 12 as Satan is defeated. Jesus is victorious. And now God's people have victory over the evil one as well. Notice here that there is further description of Satan in verses 9 and 10. We're told at the end of verse 9 that he is the deceiver of the whole world. In verse 10, we're told that he is the accuser of our brothers accuses them day and night before our God. This is who the evil one is. This is who Satan is. He is a deceiver. He is a liar. He is the accuser. He is our adversary. He is a slanderer of God and God's people. We read in verses 13 through 17, the next part of this drama of redemption being unfolded for us. Jesus was beyond the grasp of the evil one. And so he turned, we read his fury, the Satan, the evil one, Satan turned his fury against the woman, against the church of God's people. But notice this wonderful truth that we get that the woman, God's beloved treasured possession are protected by God. 
He keeps them safe in the wilderness. He nourishes them. He cares for them. The serpent, we're told, opens his mouth as he always does and tries to sweep away God's people with the flood of lies. But the Lord uses even his own creation to protect his people by having the earth swallow up the river of the evil lies that are spit out by the serpent. And we read at the end that Satan is so furious and he continues to seek to destroy the offspring of God's people. This is the picture that we get of this spiritual drama, this cosmic spiritual drama that is being played out in the spiritual realms, in the spirit behind the spiritual, uh, uh, the spiritual, uh, uh, the realm of what we can't see. We see when Jesus is born and through his life and his death and his resurrection and his ascension. And even down today, there's this cosmic battle that is playing out. And it will until Jesus returns for his second advent. The red dragon, the ancient serpent, the devil, Satan himself is at war with God's people. But in the midst of telling us this drama of redemption, John also tells us something very important. It's a declaration of the freedom and the protection of God's people. Look at verses 10 and 11. Here we have pretty much in the middle of chapter 12, which is in the middle of the entire book, two verses which most of the commentators believe are the most important interpretive verses in the entire chapter for sure, perhaps even in the book. Look at what we read in verse 10. John said, I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come, for the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they love not their lives, even unto death. These two verses put everything we're reading in perspective. With the arrival of Jesus and the victory that he achieved through his work, through his death, through his resurrection and through his ascension. The accuser, the deceiver, the adversary has been defeated. He is defeated now and will be forever. This is incredibly good news for you if you are in Christ Jesus. Do you hear the good news of the freedom that you have in Christ the accuser can accuse you no more. Apparently, before Jesus came, Satan would accuse God's people day and night before God. But not anymore. The accuser, the slanderer, the liar, the deceiver has been silenced. Now God's people are free from any accusation against them. And why? Well, what are we told in verse 11? You are free from any accusation that the evil one would bring against you by the blood of the Lamb. Because of Jesus' blood being shed on the cross, your sins are now perfectly and completely covered in every way. There is, there, there, there is now therefore no condemnation, no accusation against you if you are in Christ Jesus. Because the blood of the Lamb is covering those accusations covering your sin. Notice he says it's not just by the blood of the Lamb that we conquer our accuser, but it is by the word of our testimony. And what is that? 
If you are called before the elders to give an account of your faith in Christ, if you are called to give an account of your testimony, what is it that you will tell us? It will, you will tell us about the gospel. You will tell us about the Lord Jesus Christ coming into this world and giving his life freely that you might be saved by his grace. Through faith in Jesus, we are fully acquitted of all our sins, past, present, and future. Your accuser has been silenced, has been defeated. He no longer has the power to speak lies over you. I I wonder what accusations come into your mind. What are the accusations that you listen to? How could God truly love and accept someone like me? How How could God forgive me again and again and again for the same sin? How could a true child of God have thoughts like I have or do things like I do? Those accusations are lies. They are accusations. They are slander. And you are called as one of God's beloved, treasured people who have had the blood of the Lamb covering you to not believe them anymore. Trust in what the Scriptures say are true of you. This is wonderful good news of the freedom that we have from the accusations of the evil one. But there's also this wonderful picture of the protection that we have by God's grace and mercy. In verses 13 through 17, we get the picture of the dragon no longer being able to pursue the Lord Jesus Christ. And so he goes after the woman. He goes after God's people and he goes after God's people with a fury. But notice we get we are given in this these verses, this picture of how God does not allow the accuser to overcome his people. In fact, he protects his people. Satan is furious with anyone who is in Christ. He would love to devour you. He would love to destroy you. But the picture that we get in Revelation 12 is that if you are God's people, then you are protected by God himself. He takes you into his wilderness. He protects you and he nourishes you. He cares for you. He keeps you beyond the grasp of the serpent. And for how long does he do that? Well, the text says he does it for 1,260 days. And we talked about that last week. It's the same number as 42 months. It's the same number as three and a half years, a number that uh, in a time frame that is used throughout Scripture to talk about the time between the first coming of Jesus and his second coming. In other words, how long does God protect you? He protects you until Jesus returns and you will be with him face to face. It, it, It helps bring alive some of the passages that we think of in the Scriptures that are so Meaningful to us. I think of Isaiah chapter 43. Now, thus says the Lord, he who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name and you are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. And when you walk through fire, you shall not be burned and the flames shall not consume you. For I am the Lord, your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. 
I gave Egypt as your ransom, Cush and Seba in exchange for you, because you are precious in my eyes and honored, and I love you. I gave men in exchange for you, peoples in exchange for your life. Fear not, for I am with you. I will bring your offspring from the east and from the west. I will gather you. I will say to the north, give up. And to the south, do not withhold. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the end of the earth. Everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and I made. Or we think of that wonderful passage that we read last week in our as we were looking at Revelation chapter 11, Romans chapter 8, just a reminder of those last few verses in chapter 8 of Romans. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. If you are a child of God, if you are one of God's beloved people, if you are in Christ, then you have this certain and everlasting promise of our God and King that He will protect you. That He will watch over you. That He will preserve you. That He will nourish you. That He will bring you to Himself. How should we respond? When we hear this incredible story of the drama of redemptive history and we hear the declaration of our freedom from accusation and the promise of our protection by our Heavenly Father, how should we respond? Well, how did the people respond in Revelation chapter 12? Look again at verse 11 as they are reminded that they've conquered the evil one by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony for they love not their lives even unto death. Therefore, how did they respond? Rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. If you are a child of God, if your home is in heaven, then in response to the wonderful gospel of Revelation 12, you are to be worshiping God your life is to be doxology. The proper and necessary response to this wonderful story of redemption is to live a life of doxology, to live a life of praise and worship. Now, certainly we're supposed to do that every week as we gather together uh, here at Trinity or other churches that are God's people. We are to worship the Lord corporately and we're to do that in our families what we do here every single week is not simply routine. It's not simply to be going through the motions. Every single week as we gather corporately as God's people, we are rehearsing and remembering this wonderful story of redemption. We are remembering that our accuser has been defeated and we now have freedom in Christ. And we are remembering the promise that we are God's treasured and protected people. And so we give thanks and praise and worship to our God. Because of that freedom and protection that we have. But it's not just to be something that we do on Sundays. If we believe this, if we are moved by this wonderful gospel, then our entire life is to be one of doxology. Every part of our lives should be lived out for the glory and the praise and the enjoyment of God. That's what the Shorter Catechism question 1 says, is it not? What is your chief end? What is your chief purpose in life? It is to... Students, glorify God 
and enjoy Him forever. Our entire life is to be about the praise and the enjoyment of our God. That means that whatever God calls you to in vocation, whatever your job is, you are to look at it through the lens of doxology. If you're a student, whether you're in elementary school or middle school, high school, college, graduate school, medical school, residency, whatever aspect of school you are in, you are to look at it through the, through the lens of doxology. How am I to live my life as a student to the praise and to the glory and to the enjoyment of God? How we arrange our homes, how we manage our homes should be viewed through the lens of doxology. What we do with our money, and which, by the way, it's not our money. It's God's money that He gives to us to be good stewards with. And what we do with it is to be viewed through the lens of doxology, praise and worship of our God, how we treat our bodies, how we treat others who are made in the image of God. All of it is to be viewed through the lens of praise and worship and enjoyment of God. How often we spend time rather focused on ourselves, our problems, our needs and wants. That's probably the reason why in verse 11 at the end it says that God's people who are truly moved by these wonderful truths that we have in chapter 12 don't even think of their own lives but are willing to give them up. If you are one of God's people and you're moved by this wonderful gospel in Revelation chapter 12, you are to be people who are living your life in doxology. I would be remiss if I didn't end by also pointing out the warning that's here in verse 12. Not only are God's people to be moved to doxology, but there's a danger for those who are not in Christ. That is what we read in verse 12. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath because he knows that his time is short. It's a somber warning. The devil knows that his time is short. His end, his doom is sure. And he goes after all those who are not in Christ with great wrath. And if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, you're not resting in a faith that is in the Lord Jesus Christ alone, then there is no freedom from the accuser and his accusations for you. There is no protection from his wrath. Don't you want the certainty of having no accusation against you, of freedom from guilt and shame of your sin? And don't you want the certainty of the promise of God's protection over you, not only now, but on that day when the seventh trumpet blows and we all have to give an account of our lives? Today is that day. Put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Trust in His glorious gospel. And today, be numbered with the family, with the people of God. Back in 2006, back in Nigeria, the Boko Haram Muslim gang tracked down Benjamin Kwashi. They wanted to silence him from speaking about the Christian faith, of testifying about the blood of Jesus, of sharing the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so they went to his home. Reverend Kwashi wasn't there. But one of his sons and his wife were there. And they beat his son. 
and they brutalized his wife in unspeakable ways, left her partially blind, and both of them for dead. Reverend Kwashi eventually came home and he found his son and his wife began to nurse them back to health. It took an entire year before they were back to where they were with their health. And almost exactly a year after those events took place, the Boko Haram gang showed up again. This time, Reverend Kwashi was there. They dragged him into the town square and they prepared to execute him unless he would renounce his faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, which of course he was not going to do. He refused and instead he begged that he might be allowed to pray one last time before they killed him. He knelt down and he began to pray out loud. After a couple of minutes, he felt a hand on his shoulder. He looked up and it was his wife, Gloria. She had made her way through the crowds. She had made her way through the very attackers that had brutalized her. And she knelt down next to her husband, prepared to die for her faith, even as he would die for his. They began to pray together. A few minutes later, Reverend Kwashi felt another hand on his shoulder. He looked up. It was one of his sons. And he yelled to his son. He said, son, leave. Get out of here. They will kill you like they're going to kill us. And his son said, daddy, they're all gone. Apparently, your prayers scared them off. I would ask you, what kind of gospel is strong enough and big enough and powerful enough to come to the country of Nigeria and to see thousands upon thousands of people put their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ through generations of families, all while scores of people are being killed for their faith in Christ. What gospel is powerful enough to motivate people to hold steady in their faith, even in the face of being executed for their love of Jesus What kind of gospel is powerful enough to scare away killers? It's the gospel that's being described to us in Revelation chapter 12. It's the greatest story that has ever been told. It is the drama, the true drama of redemptive history that includes the declaration of God's people's freedom from the accusations of the evil one because of the blood of the lamb and the promise of the protection of God's people by God himself. And the more that that moves you and your heart and soul, the more you should be moved to be people of incredible doxology and praise and worship. Let's pray together. Father, we confess that the lies of the evil one, the accusations that we hear within our own hearts, oftentimes are very loud and convincing to us. But I pray that in those moments and in every moment we would believe what your word says that our accuser has been conquered he has no power over us anymore because of the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ and it's in his name we pray Amen I read to you from 1 Corinthians and Paul's instructions about the Lord's Supper. Paul says, I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. 
In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Now listen. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Do you recognize that every time we come to the Lord's Supper at the conclusion of our service, Satan hates it. He hates when we gather around this table because when we gather around this table as God's people, we are proclaiming the Lord's life, death, resurrection, and ascension. And he hates it. We stand on the truth of God giving his son his body for us and his blood being shed for us. And every time we do it, we proclaim Jesus' birth, life, death, resurrection, and ascension. This great drama of redemption. He hates it. The evil one hates it not only because of what we declare, but also because he knows that this is a source of incredible hope and help for God's people. We remember what is true. What has been completed and finished in the work of Jesus. And we're filled with strength as we come in faith and the Holy Spirit's at work. So if you're here this morning and you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. You are a part of God's family. And you have confessed that faith publicly and joined yourself together with a church that believes that the gospel is true. That God's word is true. Then as the elements come around to you, eat, drink, know that your accuser is defeated. Rest in the promise of God's protection over you and be strengthened in your faith so that we can go out and serve our great God and King this week ahead. Let's pause and thank Him for giving us this table. Our Father in Heaven, we do thank You for the Lord's Supper. We thank You for this means of grace. We pray that You would use it as such through the work of the Spirit. As we come to You in faith, trusting in Christ, we pray that You would strengthen our faith, make it strong, that as we go out, we would believe the truth of Your Word more than when we hear these accusations against us in our own hearts and minds, or even from the evil one. We pray You would do this for Your glory and for the good of Your people. In Jesus' name, Amen.